Our Father, we sing about how you listen to the cries of your people, and we don't really appreciate that until we're crying. We don't appreciate it until life has taken a cruel turn. We don't, get, we don't appreciate it until tragedy surprises us. And then, then we're oh so glad that the God of mercy is everlastingly good and his loving kindness endures forever. That his ear is bent towards the cries of his people. And so, Father, um, we, we want to thank you now that you are attuned to the longings and the requests and the, and the issues that, that are filling our hearts, even this very minute. Lord, Mother's Day is a, is a wonderful day, and there are women in this room that are just enjoying being a mother and, and prayed to be a mother for so long, and they are, and everything is, is sweet and healthy and, and good and enjoyable. But there are other mothers, Father, who um, are who are anguished over the remembrance of losing a child. There are mothers who are anguished because their children have not seen the beauty of righteousness. There are other women here who would long to be a mother, and yet at this point have not you have not seen fit to grace them with that. And there is there are issue after issue on this day. For some, it's a gloriously happy day but for others it's it is it is an unhappy day and it's a it's a somber reminder of pain pain endured in the past and pain felt in the present and i and i pray that you will in in view of all that come alongside and minister to the unique need that exists in a unique way might your people rally around those whose pain is apparent. Lord, uh, we continue to pray for our church. We want to be a part of a community in which we are a part of the solution to the many issues that face our community. We, uh, we find that, that crime continues to spiral out of control and and the church is got the solution. We have a message that talks about meaning and hope and forgiveness and, and repentance. And I pray that you will stir this church up, that we might not miss the great opportunities that are in front of us. Lord, um, now is a time where we get to give, and the privilege is ours. Maybe it's not viewed like that by everybody. But Lord, grant us grace to see that we have the need to take a stab at our flesh by giving away that which you've provided. To communicate, first of all, that we trust you with our financial future, but that also we want to be obedient to clear admonitions of your word. Now, Father, take these monies and use them for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, we pray, of course, in his name. Take your Bibles and return with me to Genesis 29. While you're thumbing, um, don't forget this afternoon, 3 to 7. Come be with us. I think you will enjoy that time. I 
I want to begin reading this morning in verse 21. Uh, let me remind you, we're entering into the middle of a story, but we've done it a couple of weeks already. It's the story about Jacob finding a wife and um, working seven years for Rachel uh, and ending up with Leah. And we, we looked at that last week, and I told you that my Mother's Day sermon had two halves, and last week we're going to talk about marriage, which we did. And this morning we're going to talk about the, uh, really, the, the, the verses 31 and following, we're going to talk about the, uh, the, the parenting end of this little story. So follow with me as I read, beginning in verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of, of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now, this time, my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. I want to begin this morning by introducing you to a book. (laughs) Why? Well, because first of all, I hope you'll read it. I hope you'll buy it and read it. Um, And this book will be available to you two weeks from today, uh, on the 28th of May. But the the other reason that I introduce it to you is because um, both this morning and two weeks from this morning, I'm going to be drawing a bit out of this book. I wanted you to know where it came from. Um, the issues that, that this book discusses are nothing new. You've heard them before. You've heard them before behind this pulpit. But um, this, this man is awfully creative in the way that he discusses them. And, and I, I hope, I, I think you'll enjoy. I, it seems to me that it's a book written for us. The title, Death by Suburb. <laughs> um, anyway, you, you, I'm going to give you a taste of it both today and then two weeks from today. 
And then hopefully uh, you will pick it up, read it yourself. Um, guys, the lesson that is before us this morning is not a lesson that comes via Jacob. We've, we've learned several things, hopefully, from Jacob. But the, um, the lesson this morning comes from or through Leah. Can you see what she's doing? It's not all that hard to detect. It doesn't take, you know, a, a degree in clinical psychology to, to figure out what Leah is doing. Um, she knows that when compared to her sister Rachel, she's not much to look at. And she knows that she's not going to get a whole lot of attention based on her looks. So, she determines that I'm going to have to get approval and applause uh, another way. Because um, compared to my sister, <laughs> you know, I don't stand a chance. And so she decides that the way that she is going to gain approval is by being a high achiever, by being a good performer. That is, I'm going to perform my way into the applause and approval of my husband, Jacob. I want his love, and the way that I'm going to give it is to perform well for it. The ugly tries to make herself beautiful by performing well. <laughs> now, let me, let's discuss that. That's what we're going to discuss the rest of the morning, actually. First of all, um, how do we know that she's ugly? Well, we really don't. There is a mention of something in verse 17 about her eyes. Verse 17 says that her eyes were weak. At least my translation says weak. The Hebrew word there is a word, harak. Um, and it's kind of hard to, to uh, translate. It could, it could mean that they were weak eyes, that they were listless eyes, that they were dull eyes. She could have had some kind of eye impairment. She could have been cross-eyed. I don't know. But when you, when you set that statement down next to the next half of that verse, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance, the narrator is trying to tell you something. Um, if nothing else, he is saying, well, Leah, when you compare her to her sister Rachel, <laughs> well, then Rachel was beautiful. So he's telling you something that at least compared to Rachel... Leah was ugly. But if we can't say that, we can say this, because the text says it specifically. Look at verse 30, excuse me, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Now, I don't know what your translation says for hated, but the Hebrew word is hated. And I think it'll be in the margin of your translations. Uh, Leah was hated. Not with the um, grinding teeth, clenched fist kind of hate. But it's, it's hate in the sense of verse 30, where it says that um, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Uh, it, the, the text leaves no doubt that Leah, <laughs> Leah is the consummate second place. In terms of this battle for the husband's affections, she's a loser. And the loser tries to change that by performing well. 
You know, even in verse 23 there, when her father comes up with the scheme about slipping her in the tent in the dark Palestinian night, she goes along with that. And then the next morning when, when Jacob wakes up and finds out that it's Leah and he's, oh, who are you? I didn't work for you. I worked for your sister. I mean, that, how, how hurtful that must have been to her. And yet she comes to a firm conviction that the way that I'm going to win my husband's affection is through making babies. And boy, she does that pretty well. The pathos of her attempt can be seen, ladies and gentlemen, in this whole naming of her sons, the naming process. Few things are more pathetic than the naming of her first three sons. Now, let me to understand that you got to know you got to know a little bit about the whole naming thing in the Bible, gang. When uh, naming in the Old and New Testaments was far more than simply supplying a label or a handle to one of your children. Uh, let me give you some examples of the importance of naming, at least in the Old Testament and in the New. For instance, how does God describe himself? How does God reveal himself? Well, he does so by the use of names. That is, names were, were self-revelational. They were a piece of self-disclosure. God explains himself, describes himself by the usage of names. It was, it was this way that we learned about the character of God as he assigned to himself names. Um, another way you see it in the Old Testament, uh, that names or naming connotes authority over. For instance... Adam names all the animals because Adam is to be the ruler over the whole animal kingdom. Another example, who is it that named your children? That would be mom and dad, right? Uh, communicating authority over it. By the way, who is it that named Jesus? It wasn't his mother and father. It wasn't Mary and Joseph. The normal parental prerogative of naming a child was removed from Mary and Joseph and the name came from God, sent by an angel. You shall call him Jesus. That wasn't Mary and Joseph's idea because Jesus was not going to be under the authority of mom and dad or Mary and Joseph. He was going to be under the authority of the Heavenly Father. One other way that just shows you the importance of naming. The book of Daniel. So everybody seems to know the book of Daniel. You know, Daniel and his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, folks, those weren't their names. You know that, don't you? Those weren't their given names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those were names that were assigned to them by their Babylonian captors. By the way, Daniel had another name too. His name was Belteshazzar. Because naming communicates authority over. Oh, but Jimmy, I, I see what you're saying. But that may have been true in the Bible. But, you know, names don't mean much anymore. Really. Gang. Companies spend millions with the marketing firms getting their products named and their cars named. And by the way, why do we call Paul Hewson Bono? And um, why do we call Robert Zimmerman Bob Dylan? And why did Martha Koistra become Martha Stewart? 
And um, why did Marshall Bruce Mathers III become Eminem? And why did Marion Michael Morrison become John Wayne? Because everybody knows you can't have a cowboy named Marion. Well, you can probably today, but I mean, you, you couldn't win. <laughs> I mean, just go to the movies and you'll find that out, folks. But the point is, names still pack quite a wallop. Um, maybe not as much of a wallop in the Old Testament as in the Old Testament. But name, this, this naming thing that's going on here is very significant. And ladies and gentlemen, it is incredibly pathetic. Folks, I'm not making this up. If you will read your text, you will see what she is doing. She says, okay, I know that I'm not loved. And, I, you know, I'll never be able to compete with my beautiful sister. So, I'll show them. I'll just become a good performer. And so, she goes into that tent and voila! She bears her son. And her first son, this is in verse 32, she names him Reuben, which is a Hebrew word that means, behold, a son. This is a cry of a forlorn woman, a, a woman who is desperate to be loved. And, and, and what she does with the name is something like this. Hey, y'all, <laughs> look what I did. Look what I got. You know, sons were very valuable in that culture. Hey, <laughs> you know, kind of like your kids do in the pool. Hey, mom, mom, dad, watch me, watch me. Hey, mom, hey, Jacob, look what I did. Um, and now, surely, Jacob will love me after I've performed so admirably. Mm, didn't work. Okay. Um, he still doesn't love me. I, I, I know. I'm just going to have to work harder. And so she, back to the tent. Second son, Simeon. And a Simeon is a name, is a Hebrew word, which means heard. Okay, now we're talking. <laughs> you know, God, God has heard me. And now Jacob will certainly notice my great and recognize my great value because I, I did so well by giving him, uh, you know, a second son in my situation. <laughs> All she's got is looks. What? You mean he still doesn't? He still doesn't value me? Well, we're going to have to ramp this thing up some. I'm going to have to get back in there, and we're going to have to have another one. And so she goes and she has another child, and. And this is perhaps the most pitiful of all. She names him Levi, a Hebrew word which means to attach or to, to join. I know I'm ugly, and I know that Rachel's beautiful, but just look at what I've produced. Surely now my husband will attach to me. He will join me. And she voices this desperate hope to have her husband join her by naming her son Levi. And as she gives these, as you see the naming process goes on, she's growing more and more bitter with the arrival of every son. And then, gang, we're not told, we're not given any of the details. We're not told what happened. But in the birth of her fourth son, 
Leah apparently has changed. She, she now seems to, she, she seems to have recovered her spiritual balance, her spiritual optimism, and she realizes that this is not working. That if I'm ever going to have to have or get value, it's not going to be in something horizontal. It's going to be in something vertical. And so her fourth son arrives and she names him Praise. She names him Judah. And, and, and you do know, don't you, that in this fourth son of hers, her childbearing ceases, by the way, and she seems to begin, she seems to, begin to understand that the true, that, that, that my value is something that's going to come from God. And she names her fourth son Judah. And Judah, of course, becomes the line of promise. Jesus is born from the tribe of Judah. And this deposed mother, this, this rejected outsider, the kind of the throw-in, the, the add-on, the afterthought, she becomes the one who gives birth to the line of Jesus Christ while the beautiful is bypassed. And at that point, guys, she seems to get something. But oh, how long it took her to get there. Oh, the pathetic attempts on Leah's part to try and gain the approval of her husband. Now, guys, I, I want to suggest to you that there is a huge lesson in this for us as parents and for you as moms. Here, here's the lesson kind of generally stated, and then we're going to unpack it with the rest of our time. But the, the, the lesson is this. You don't get rid of the ugly by trying harder. I, I think stated a bit more clearly, my worth is not established by my performance. That's the lesson. Now, can I take a minute or two, just take you down a side road, because I want to apply that lesson, first of all, to our souls. And then I'm going to come back, and then I, I want to apply that lesson to our homes. But first of all, I've got to say this about how it applies to our souls. And the, and the lesson is that my worth is not established by my performance. Guys, um, the essence of religion... Now, guys, listen to me. I'm using the word religion very pejoratively. I, I'm saying that it is the antithesis. That is, religion is the antithesis of Christianity. But the essence of religion is this. Work hard, keep your nose clean, obey the Ten Commandments, give a little money, teach a class, um, be faithful to your wife. And then when you die, you bundle all of that up you, and you appear before God and you kind of deliver it over to him. And then God bases his uh, verdict on you based on your performance. That's religion, ladies and gentlemen. That's Judaism. It's, it's what Mormonism will tell you. It's what the Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you. Just work hard enough and God will approve of you when it's all over. And I'm saying to you, Christianity, 
completely overturns that. Christianity says your performance and mine are completely unacceptable and punishable. However, the good news is Christ's performance was perfect. And I get credit for his performance when I trust in him and him alone. So based on Christ's merit, the verdict about me is already in. I'm accepted. I'm forgiven. And now, because I am, I'm supposed to go out and live my life enjoying forgiveness. Enjoying the fact that I'm a child of the King of Kings. My worth is not based on my performance. Now, that's the lesson applied to ourselves, okay? Now, let's go back to try and apply the lesson to our homes. Remember the lesson. Remember the principle. The principle is you don't get rid of the ugly by trying harder. Or my worth is not established by my performance. Susie and I were away the last week of April, and, uh, you know, I don't know what you know about my vacations. They're pretty boring by most standards. Um, my wife shops at discount stores, and I read books. That's pretty much it. Um, we went to Orlando, you know, the, the, the hub of all tourist activity. <laughs> we never went to Disney World or Epcot or SeaWorld or Univ- We didn't do anything. I sat around the pool, read books. She went and shopped at a discount store. And one of the books that I read while I was away was this one. Um, and, and again, I hope you'll read it. I, I hope you'll buy it. It'll be available to you on the 28th. But the issues that are discussed in this book are really not new. I, I've discussed them with you before. But I want you to know this author does a much better, much more creative job of communicating these issues um, than I did. The main issue in this book is what the author calls, listen, <laughs> he calls it, Immortality symbols. Did you get that? Immortality symbols. It's, it's, um, it's what I've called idolatry in the past. He calls it immortality symbols. But, but they're both the same thing. They're methods. They're strategies by which, or strategies that I adopt by which I seek to establish my worth or I try to get rid of my ugly by performing well. And he mentions several immortality symbols. And here's the punchline, folks. At least the punchline for Mother's Day. The immortality symbol that he discusses the most frequently is our kids. He's suggesting, in essence, that we, like Leah, are are trying to establish our worth through our kids. We, as parents, we, we sense some deficiency in us, and so we try to get our children to fill it. You see, ladies and gentlemen, an immortality symbol is not about the thing. It's about the approval that the thing brings to me. 
Why is it that I feel so blessed that my son has the highest batting average on his GYAA team? You know, athletic kids can be the crowning immortality symbol. Um, successful children are the ultimate glory in today's suburban culture. Children level the playing field. Whether they're from blue money or new money or no money, each child represents the opportunity for approval for a mom and a dad. They are the ultimate extension of ourselves. And consequently, parenting has become the most competitive of all of the adult sports. In the book, in the book, he mentions a conversation that he had with um, with a clinical psychologist in Chicago. And the clinical psychologist was saying to him that um, his name is Michael Getz, uh, David Getz. Um, the clinical psychologist was saying to David Getz um, that she was a woman and she was seeing numerous angry preteen adolescents. She said her practice was filled with angry preteen adolescents. And so David Getz said, well, why do you think that is? And here's what she said. Mothers who love too much. She goes on to give the example, use the example about the, the young mother who puts away the paint set uh, and cleans up the mess for her son because he's moved on to play with something else. But 20 minutes later, the child begs his mother to paint again. And so instead of saying, I'm sorry, sonny boy, I mean, I've already put that up. You need to find something else to do. The mother drags the paint set out and lets the child paint again. And what this clinical psychologist was saying is what happens is that when the child is in this pre-adolescent teen years, um, because he now or she now faces some disappointments at schools with friends and, or maybe even at home, they so are, are so unequipped to deal with the disappointment that the only thing that can happen is that anger collects and pools and then it begins to explode all over everybody around them. But that's just one therapist's opinion. That's true. Do you think it has any merit at all? I do. You know, why, why is it that I'm so bothered? This is out of the book. Why is it that I'm so bothered that the gift my six-year-old brought to her friend's birthday party was worth perhaps one-tenth of the goodies that she brought home from the birthday party? A chalk caricature of her drawn by an artist hired by the party mom, a long stem red rose, a plastic tiara, a cardboard princess purse, a mylar balloon, four candy necklaces, and a toy emerald ring. You know you are a suburban loser 
when your person, personal immortality symbol is your daughter's gift at a six-year-old birthday party. Why is it that I'm so upset when my child is not invited into the TAG program? You know what the TAG program is, don't you? The program for the talented and the gifted. Or that my child is not identified as the Ivy League bound of the third grade. Or that I'm, my child is not a baby Einstein. This is also from the book. I'm not simply a doting father in love with his son. I'm trying to convey something much more important. I have acquired an immortality symbol. I know this to be true because of the anxiety I feel when one of my kids gets B's instead of A's. I begin to crack down at home. Just the other evening, my wife turned to me and said, Is there something wrong with this picture? We're working on Stephen's political science project for school, and he's in his room playing his Game Boy. My wife and I were quite proud when he got an A on the project. Tell me, Mom, how many science projects have you done? Hmm? Tell me why. I saw a bumper sticker while we were in Orlando, and this is not in the book. This is, but I saw a bumper sticker, and I, <laughs> I was on my way to Popeye's fried chicken, um, walking, <laughs> unshaven and in my bathing suit, and my wife, <laughs> my wife gets home and, and says, I, I can't believe that you would appear in public looking like that. <laughs> But they didn't know me at Popeye's. But, uh, but anyway, um, <laughs> I did run into somebody at Schnucks last week buying drinks for Grace Group. And I was in some pajama shorts and some, uh, some house shoes and a T-shirt. And, and I get into this line to pay for this. And the guy in the, behind, in the back, it, it, right behind me, says, oh, Dr. Young, we've been enjoying visiting Gracie Man. <laughs> and I said, I said, what is your name? <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I saw this bumper sticker, uh, and the bumper sticker said, listen, this, I, I didn't make this up. I'm the proud parent of two average kids at Cross Creek Public High School. Average? We loathe that word. Average is not good enough for my home. Guys, I, I want you to know something. I, I know that you would rather me be light and airy and sweet on Mother's Day. And I, this is, sermon is probably not going to get me a whole lot of love. But I, but I decided to mention some of this. For these reasons. First of all, I hope I was led to do so by the Holy Spirit of God. I hope that happens every week. But here's the other part of my motive. Do you not agree with me that the story about Leah is pitiful? 
Is that not a pitiful story? Bless her heart. There she is trying to just get somebody to recognize that she's got some worth and value. And, and the only way she knows how to do it is to make a baby. And then she makes the baby and it doesn't work. And that is pitiful. My, my fear is that a whole lot of us are making the same mistake that Leah made. And that's pitiful. It's pitiful that you can sit there and not sense your worth that's already yours. It's pitiful to think that you're striving to have somebody approve of you by performing well. It's not going to work, gang. It's futile. Forget the details of Leah's story. The principle is you can never get rid of the ugly by trying harder. Forget the details of hers. What about your story? And, and, I, and I think that some of you are exhausted in your trying. And some of it is trying to get, simply get the approval of my husband or my wife. And, and it's, it's not just the moms. I, I hope it's, I mean, dads are equally as guilty. And by the way, it's not only through kids. It's not only kids that are immortality symbols. But today was Mother's Day. Would you listen to me? And until the Lord separates us as pastor and congregation, I'm going to tell you this in, many, in as many creative ways as I can find to tell you. Your worth is not tied to your productivity. Do you hear me? But tell that to the dad who's furious because his son isn't getting enough PT in the rec league. You know what PT is, don't you? That'd be playing time. Or tell that to the mother who is so upset that her daughter is not in the top reading group in the second grade class. Guys, we're harming ourselves and we're harming our kids. Because we possess false immortality symbols. We're acting like Leah. And we agreed that's pitiful. Gang, the ugly in us, and we all got it. The ugly in us gets forgotten when we rest in the God who made us and the God who loves us, and the God who does all things well, including you. I am not valuable because I produce a lot. I am valuable because God loves me 
and his, and his love is not value-recognizing. His love is value-creating. When he loved me, it created value. Oh, the serenity of knowing that I am his and he is mine. The secret of good parenting is knowing that I am parented by a good heavenly Father that loves me and approves of me and accepts me and even applauds me. None of which is based on my performance. It is simply based on the fact that I am in Christ. After four sons, I think Leah got it. Have you? I hope so. And I thought that was the best Mother's Day gift I could give to anybody. Our Father, I, I do pray that you will. This is not an easy lesson to learn. It's not a, it's a, it, it takes a lifetime, I guess, to, to, to get it pounded into the base of our souls. But, oh God, by the Holy Spirit, pound it. Pound it until we get it. Pound it until we know that we're safe, we're secure, we're loved, we're approved, we're applauded, we're accepted in the beloved. That we're accepted not because we performed well. We're accepted because Jesus performed well. And that our souls are safe because of his performance, not ours. And then, Father, help us to take that lesson about eternity and turn it into something that will change our lives here and now. Do that, Father. Do that for Jesus' sake. We pray, of course, in his name.